We have a good deal to look at in our actually pretty short passage this morning, so we'll get right to it. And we'll start with you, young Christians, young theologians. This morning we're going to hear a lot about how the Christian life is like being in a hospital. But here's the thing. In a hospital there are generally two kinds of people there. There are those who are there because there's something wrong. There's something wrong with them. They're hurt. They're sick. They're ill in some way. And then there are those who are in the hospital because they work there. They help the sick patients get better in some way. And so here's the question. If Christianity, if your Christian life is like a hospital, which type of person are you? Are you a patient? Or are you a member of the staff? This is the good news of Jesus Christ as told by Luke, who was a physician himself, reminding us of the ongoing, unceasing work of the greatest physician who heals and calls his people. And we find it this morning in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And you can find it printed for you on page 6 of your bulletin. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, we come this morning in need once again of your healing balm and need once again of your spirit to help us see your word, to understand it, to understand who Jesus is as he's given to us in this passage, to understand what he's doing, what he's saying, to understand more the depths of our sickness and our need, and yet to be encouraged and filled with hope and drawn to you because we see yet still more the greater depths of Jesus' healing. Do this for us, Father. In the name of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. So how do you feel about hospitals? How do you feel about hospitals? I mean, have you ever really met, have any of us really met someone who has said, you know, I really like hospitals. We're taking the kids to California this summer. We're just going to visit all their hospitals. It's going to be our little hospication. And, you know, for most of us, you know, we're not thinking about hospitals and fun in the same category. Those things don't go together for us. 
But at the same time, if we took a little bit more time to think about it, we, we'd all admit that some really, really important things, in fact, maybe some of the most important things in our lives have actually happened inside a hospital. Our births, for starters, most of us were probably born in a hospital. The births of our children, some of you, although maybe had your kids at home, just to make the rest of us feel uncomfortable, like Jim Gaffigan says. <laughs> We've said hello. We've said welcome for the first time to some of the most important people in our lives in hospitals. We've said goodbye, too. I've made some really close friends in hospitals. I've cried a lot, I've laughed a lot, and I've prayed a lot in hospitals. I've grown closer to God in hospitals. I've had my life saved a couple of times, a few times, in a hospital. So has my wife, Ellen, and so have many of my family members and friends. Hospitals, they're not about fun, really, are they? They're about life. They're about saving it and nurturing it. We know this, and that's why we go there. When we load up in the car or on a bus and we head to the hospital, we're going there typically to meet one or even more very special people. Doctors, physicians, nurses, healers. That's why they're there. That's where they are. That's where their tools, that's where their equipment are. And so we go there to them. But what happens? What happens when the hospital, what happens when the emergency room, the ER, comes to you? What do you do with a healer, a physician who creates an ER wherever he happens to be? Because this is what we find, not just in our passage this morning, but this is what we have been finding, actually, in every passage in Luke's Gospel since chapter 4, verse 31. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus is in Capernaum, a city of Galilee, which is in northern Israel. And he sets up a clinic, so to speak, everywhere he goes. He's casting out demons showing his power over unclean spirits that were terrifying and too powerful for everyone else. He's healing people of high fevers and various diseases, demonstrating his power over the effect that sin has had on the creation, including our physical bodies. And in chapter 5, Jesus begins moving throughout the whole region of Galilee, and he just takes his ER ministry with him. He heals the leprous man of leprosy and all the shame that went with having that disease. And last week we saw him heal a paralyzed man, restoring to this man the full use of his body. In all these cases, Jesus is healing people's bodies and he's healing their souls. And and, and the, the physical ailments, the illnesses, they're real. They're literal things, but they also are meant to serve as pictures of our sin-cursed souls that need Jesus' healing just as much. And then we come 
to verse 27 before us this morning. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. As one scholar has put it in our passage this morning, we find that Jesus' outreach to the outcasts continues. But now he deals with the social outcast rather than the physically handicapped. Social outcast. It's hard to think of a greater social outcast in that time than a tax collector. A publican, as maybe the translation that you have this morning may have it. A tax collector, a publican, was a very loathed, a very hated member of ancient Israelite society. Tax collectors were recruited by Rome from the local population, meaning that in Israel, tax collectors were Jews, as Levi was. Levi is also known as Matthew. He's the author of the first gospel account we have in our Bibles, the gospel according to Matthew. But they collected their taxes ultimately for the Roman government, the occupying force that every Jew resented and hated. And also, as an incentive to prospective tax collectors, Roman governors would would kind of look the other way while tax collectors would skim money off the top. And so if I told you that the tax rate was 19% when it was actually really only 16%, I got to pocket the extra 3%. And so in this way, tax collectors could become fabulously wealthy. Like Zacchaeus, who we'll meet in Luke chapter 19, who's a chief tax collector. And so it starts to become clear why they were hated so much. And for starters, you can think of all the reasons throughout history that seen in every culture that the general public has for disliking wealthy people. So you can just kind of think of that. That's to start. That's the base. And then you can mix in the hatred that we all have for, for crooked Wall Street investors with Ponzi schemes. And then you kind of throw on top of that the dislike that we all pretty much have for the IRS. And then as kind of, kind of the whipped cream and kind of the cherry on top, you can think of the particular kind of rare disgust that we all have for national traitors who sell state secrets to the Russians or who help terrorists succeed in a plot. And if we put all that together, we'll begin to understand how the typical Joseph Israelite would feel about his neighborhood tax collector. And yet Jesus, Jesus goes out of his way to bring his healing ministry to the local tax booth. To one of the most hated men in Israel. To a man whom every Israelite thought it was, it was his or her sworn moral, spiritual, and patriotic duty to hate. Because this is the way that we would have felt at that time about Levi. And this is how the Pharisees and the scribes felt too. 
This is why they are completely shocked to hear that Jesus accepted an invitation to Levi's house, which was bad enough, but that he also ate with other people at the party, people who may have very well been worse than Levi, with worse reputations for being involved in unspeakable sin and lifestyles. And so we have in front of us this morning in a conversation that most certainly happened after this party, because certainly the Pharisees weren't there. The Pharisees portray themselves as those most concerned with protecting the law. Old Testament laws like Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, called upon the leaders of Israel to distinguish between the holy and the common, the unclean and the clean. And for the Pharisees, this is exactly what Jesus and the disciples are failing to do. This is what they have failed to do by having a meal with notorious sinners. And so they ask the question, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer to them only brings up more questions. Questions that Jesus thinks that the Pharisees... And we really ought to be asking. Verse 31. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Because while the Pharisees thought that they were protecting the law, Jesus knew they were doing nothing of the sort. He knew they had not gone deep enough. They weren't protecting the law. They were ignoring the ramifications of the law, the judgment of the law on their own hearts. Jesus knew that it was actually their own envy and their eagerness to find fault that stood behind their accusations. And since this is so, the question that Jesus wants us all to consider is, listen, if I can't associate with tax collectors, who can I associate with? The tax collectors, they they engaged in sins of greed and abuse of their lower classes through an entire institutional system that promoted greed and abuse. And they did it because their hearts were greedy. But the Pharisees engaged in sins of fault-finding and envy and judgmentalism and delighting in the sin of others instead of being heartbroken by their own sin. Why? Because their hearts were self-righteous and prideful and willfully blind to the billions of sins beneath the surface in their own hearts. And so if Jesus can't hang out with tax collectors, if he can't hang out with prostitutes, if he can't hang out with drug addicts, if he can't hang out with the sexually deviant, if he can't hang out with racist white people and racist black people, if he can't hang out with drunkards, if he can't hang out with the self-righteous, prideful fools, blind to their own sins, then who in the world can he hang out with? Because in Luke's gospel, he hangs out with all of these people. 
They're everywhere, on every street corner in every house. Because eventually, everyone, regardless of your economic class, your racial background, your gender, your belief system, everyone eventually needs a trip to the ER. Because we're all accidents and illnesses waiting to happen. We're all potential hospital patients waiting for our potential to become actual. And this is how Jesus saw people spiritually too. A New Testament scholar by the name of Daryl Bach, he's a... Colin and I have alluded to him on a number of occasions as we've been going through, through Luke. He's a New Testament professor at Dallas Seminary. He's written a huge, comprehensive commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Daryl Bach says this, Jesus has gone from forgiving sinners here, like he did in the last passage with a paralytic. He's gone from forgiving sinners to openly associating with them. Mission requires more than casual contact. Jesus engages with those in culture. And this is the challenge. It's the challenge of this passage. Because this passage challenges us to see our Savior for who He is, not how we might wish He were in order to make us more comfortable. Because this passage places two approaches that Christians can have to the unbelieving, disagreeing, sometimes openly hostile world around us. It gives us two approaches. It shows us two approaches that we often take or can take. To continue the hospital metaphor, we can, we can either approach people in our society as though they're in need of urgent care, which is what Jesus is doing, or we can approach them as though they belong in quarantine, which is what the Pharisees thought Jesus should have done. Jesus' actions and his words here, they challenge all of us. They challenge all of our own self-righteousness. And and that's true for you, whether you are a hardcore moral fundamentalist on the right or you are a more self-congratulating progressive on the left. Because in our world, both groups pride themselves on not associating with anyone on the other side. In our world, both sides, both groups are as self-righteous and self-congratulating as the Pharisees in this passage. Both groups spend the same amount of time on social media convincing everybody else how enlightened they are about the issues that their group cares about and how incensed they are that the other side doesn't agree. Pharisees come in all kinds of stripes and colors. They're not just the religious fundamentalists. They come in all kinds of political persuasions. They come in all kinds of social, moral, ethical issue bandwagon followers. None of those things unify them. What unifies them, what makes them all the same, is their pride in being who they are, always resistant to the forgiveness and the transformation that they need from God. That's what unifies them. 
And so you could be a secular Pharisee and you could be a very religious Pharisee. But for Jesus, healing the sick, calling sinners to repentance entails engaging them. And notice that, at least here, engagement for Jesus with the people that he's having table with, that he's having a meal with, engaging the sinners around the table here is not him engaging them in argument. Engaging them in debate. Engaging them in in an exchange of theological volleys. Not, Not in this context. In this context, engagement of those who are sick, engagement with the sinners around the table who need repentance, involves sharing good food and drink at a party. As one scholar has said, Jesus understood that it takes an open door to create open hearts. That might sound a little cheesy, but it works, actually. But neither neither does engagement through good food and drink serve as kind of a one-size-fits-all strategy for cultural engagement either. We can't look at this passage and go, well, this is the way we're supposed to always engage culture. Because who else is Jesus engaging here? Which other sick people does Jesus engage with? Well, he's, he's engaging precisely with those who don't think they're sick at all. He's engaging precisely those who don't think that they're sinners at all. And how does Jesus engage them? With argument. With debate with theological metaphors based on things that we're familiar with every day, like sick people and doctors, with Old Testament themes, like Jeremiah's despair over having no physician in Israel in Jeremiah chapter 8. He's using an Old Testament theme because he's talking to people who know the Old Testament very well. And so the point is, Jesus contextualizes his engagement with people. He's not just a student of the Word of God. He's not just a student of good doctrine. He's a student of his audience. He's a student of the people he's with. We do that in our church when we send our children off for worship training. We would be unfaithful to them if we were just sending our kids off to get glorified babysitting. We'd be unfaithful to them. It'd be unfaithful for our kids to come to church every week and not hear the gospel because we're just taking care of them back there. And so we give them the gospel. We're teaching them the gospel back there in worship training. But the way they're hearing it back there is not the same way you're hearing it here. It's contextualized for them. It's contextualized. It's the same message. It's the same saving message, but it's contextualized for them in a way that's different than here. This is what Jesus did. And so when he was with those who might assume he wants nothing to do with them, well, he attends a dinner party with those people. He goes to a barbecue with those people. He goes to a movie or hangs out at a bar with those people. And with those who think that they're too good for him, he spends time convincing them otherwise. 
And he does it all without compromising the message of who he is and why he's come. Jeroboam, I mentioned earlier, he also says about this passage, he says, Jesus' example teaches the church community that they need to seek and associate with the outcast as a part of their mission. Even though there might be some who would frown on such personal relationships. This passage, it challenges us to work in the urgent care units instead of choosing the comfortable route of quarantining those that we'd rather ignore. And obviously, it would not take any of us very long at all to think of some of the huge, some of the massive implications that there are about how we think our approach to reaching communities that many in the church even might consider untouchable. Europe's Europe's few indigenous Christians, along with many foreign missionaries who work there, they're seeing incredible fruit right now, huge fruit right now among the refugee communities that are growing so quickly there in number. I've read two articles, two articles in just the last few months about thousands of refugees that you're not going to hear about on NBC or CBS or probably any network. Thousands of refugees that are not, they're not just fleeing their war-torn Middle Eastern countries, but they're fleeing the spiritual tyranny of Islam as well. And they're finding a home, not in Western secularism, they're finding a home in Christianity. Many of them are starting to populate Europe's beautiful churches that have stood empty for so long. Unwanted social outcasts coming to Jesus because the church in those places is inviting them and caring for them instead of socially quarantining them. It forces us to ask the same question about the refugee community in our country. What it looks like to reach them. See also the Mullins and the Burgers who work for For the Nation's Refugee Outreach. What does it look like for us to reach them? I'll tell you this, though. It asks us this question, too. What does it look like to reach the LGBT community with the gospel? What does it look like? It's just using, it's just using mass media to shout at the LGBT community that they're condemned and need Jesus, has that been working out well? We've mastered that technique. We're good at it. But has that worked well with any other community we've tried to reach? No, it doesn't. It doesn't work well. But we basically choose this method by and large to address that community, not because it works, Not because we're being faithful to the gospel in doing that, but because we don't want to have to have the uncomfortable conversation about what it would actually mean to associate with and reach the LGBT community for the purpose of loving them to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. It's an uncomfortable conversation. It's a long conversation. Ellen and I, we've been to Bulgaria a few times in just the last couple of years, And when we were there, we were challenged 
to see the missionaries who were there every week taking part, every week in jumping in a van and driving out to those parts of town where the prostitutes were. And they get out of this van every Sunday night after church and they have just spent time year after year, they've been doing this for years, befriending the prostitutes and even some of their pimps on the streets. Building bridges of trust with them over the long haul. Not going out with picket signs. Not going out with loud t-shirts. But just going out and slowly building trust with them. So that when those people are finally sick of their livelihood. And they're willing to consider, you know what, there might be a different way to make money and support my family. The Christian community is there ready to help them do that. But this passage, it also challenges another false spirit that's growing very strong in the church. Because I don't know about you, but I find more and more teachers and bloggers and writers and pastors and Christian circles who are seeking to interpret such passages like this one As though Jesus' openness to engage with sinners and unbelievers is also an acceptance of their way of life. Such teachers will oftentimes in their blogs chastise conservative Christians like us for being too narrow-minded, supposedly. We're too much unlike Jesus because we want to allegedly be too harsh with these people by calling sin, sin. And Jesus, he doesn't let those types of interpretations and misunderstandings find any ground in this passage either. Or any other passage. Because notice that, in the, that here, for Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners around the table, he considers them sick, not well. These people are sick in need of healing. They're not well. They're in need of repentance, not confirmation that their different lifestyle is still very acceptable to Jesus. It's kind of like John chapter 8. John chapter 8, after telling the crowds who want to stone the adulterous woman, after he tells them, he who has no sin cast the first stone, and they all slowly walk away. And Jesus turns to the woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. And there are writers and bloggers and pastors among us who just kind of want to stop right there. As though that's all Jesus had to say. But it's not all he had to say. Because the very next line is, now go and sin no more. Sin no more. And so, neither the sectarian spirit of Puritans who are among us... And neither the flourishing, growing spirit of our age that demands that we have to tolerate any and all lifestyle choices, neither one of those approaches find approval in this passage. Neither one. Both of these false positions want to make passages like this one an either-or choice. We must either remain strong in our moral positions and not accept and receive unbelievers as friends 
or we must make friends with unbelievers and give our support to their chosen lifestyles. Never speaking to them about what's actually killing them and making them sick and separating them from the life that's in Christ. And Jesus just won't let us do it. He's just not going to let us take a both-and situation, a both-and passage like this, and make it into an either-or false choice. Because in this text, Jesus is saying that, yes, we must engage an unbelieving world with love and acceptance, loving them and accepting them because they're human beings created in God's image like you and me. We're to hang out with these people because we're those people. With people who don't believe the way we do. And we also are to recognize that truly loving these people will mean addressing their need for Jesus. It's both with him. Jesus associated with sinners and condemned all sin. The incarnation of God the Son, God the Son becoming human, meant not compromising with either one of these. He he doesn't give up his divine holiness in order to hang out with us. But his love for us doesn't mean that he thinks we're okay as we are and he's just going to leave us as we are. Jesus' view, the official Christian view for 2,000 years, is that both of these have to be believed and they have to be practiced by his church just as Jesus lived them. And anyone who's telling us something different, they either have too big of an axe to grind about something or they're selling us a ticket to sit with the cool kids in our culture at their table. One or the other but they're not being faithful to the passage. Jesus instead was present as our great physician. He's the great physician. The Pharisees, the moralist church of our day, the moralist secular public of our day, they want to judge. They want to judge. And they take it upon themselves to fill those shoes at every turn. They don't just want to judge. They want to be the judge. And for many of us, we approach Christianity kind of like like it's the admission gate at the state fair. Like, you know, we're all kind of in agreement on, like, what the price of admission is, that that we kind of have to, you know, there at at the gate, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that we need Jesus in order to get our ticket to be admitted into the rest of the park. See, I have my forgiven by Jesus ticket because I admitted somewhere back there at some point that I screwed up and I needed Jesus. But then, then we think that because we're in, we're in the park and you know we're enjoying all the special rides and the fried foods and the cotton candy. And, and we, we don't have to admit anymore that things still crop up in our dark hearts that we don't have to admit anymore to having treated a brother or a sister poorly. We don't have to admit to being prideful. We don't have to admit to falsely accusing someone, to being someone who has an anger problem or a know-it-all. Because after all, we think, I'm in the park. 
I have the ticket and people can't treat each other that way in here and be members still, right? Because we're still scared of the judge. We're scared of Jesus being a judge. And we're scared of all the little judges and the pews and the judges behind the pulpits. And we're scared to fall short of our own judgment of ourselves. But the church, it's not a theme park and it's not a courtroom either. It's not a theme park and it's not a courtroom. It's a hospital. It's an ER. We didn't get ourselves here. We were brought here by the chief physician who carried us through the double doors himself. And as Christians, we're both staff members ministering the gospel to one another and to those who are coming through the double doors. But we're forever in need again and again of the medicine that flows from the physician himself. And so we're all staff members. We're all medical technicians and forever patients both in the hospital. In the passage that we heard Jim read from earlier from Jeremiah chapter 8, the prophet in that passage, he's in despair because his own people are sick with idolatry. They're sick with loving other things more than they love God. They're sick with with taking good things, blessings, but they elevate them to the place of ultimate things in their hearts. They're sick with lying and cheating one another. And Jeremiah asks through tears at the end of that chapter, he's asked, is there no balm in Gilead? Is, Is there no physician there? The heart of Levi was sick with riches. Satan had poisoned his sinful heart again and again, dangling the promise of more money, more riches, more possessions, in order to take his eyes off the grace that he needed from God. The hearts of the Pharisees were just as sick, only with pride and self-righteousness. And both came face to face with the physician that Jeremiah longed for. But only Levi heard Jesus' call and believed. And Jesus took the sickness of sin away from Levi and suffered death himself in Levi's place. And then Jesus rose again to give life to Levi. The promise that one day Levi, he wouldn't just be free from his guilt, he'd be free from death too. And like Levi, you are called, we are called to believe, to be healed, to be forgiven, to be admitted into the hospital and to join the work of the great physician, to carry on his healing ministry by inviting others to receive the same urgent care that we have received. And so hear his call and believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we do ask that you, more and more even today, this afternoon, this week, 
would help us to believe that the Lord Jesus, whom you have sent to us, did not come as a judge, but he came as a physician. We know that you've given all judgment to him, and he will return someday as a judge. But he is about the work of healing right now, of forgiving, of cleansing, of making new. Help us to see all the ways in which we need him to do that for us. For we are your patients who are in need of your son's healing. And also, we pray, Father, that by the same light of your same spirit, you would help us to see how we can join the Lord Jesus in his work this week by inviting others to the ER, by inviting others to see that the physician holds out the same grace for them, the same forgiveness, the same healing for them. We need you to do both these things by your spirit in us. Today, this week, Father, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.